0: so thrilled and so excited uh, to say happy Palm Sunday and uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? We... We join with the voices of those who on that very first Palm Sunday said, Hosanna, Hosanna, God be exalted. And uh, if you are new with us today, we just want to say thank you so much for streaming with us, DP at Home. And uh, we would love for you there in the comment box to type just the number 4. And one of our team members are following along with today's message and today's gathering. And uh, they would love to just follow up with you. We would as a a family and just say thank you so much. Answer any questions you have about the church. Also, I want to let you know... Uh, If you are not following us on uh, Facebook, uh, obviously you can like our page here. Um, Also on Twitter, Dwelling Place GA, Instagram, Dwelling Place GA. And this week, we want you to hop onto our YouTube channel and make sure you subscribe because this coming Friday, for our Good Friday gathering at 7 o'clock, one-hour gathering, we want you to prepare elements of communion there in your homes to prep for that as we uh, celebrate Jesus and His crucifixion and ultimately Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, His Resurrection, but we are going to be also streaming or sending this feed also to our YouTube Live uh, this coming weekend. So make sure you hop on YouTube to Dwelling Place Church and subscribe and like our channel. Today's teaching text is Luke chapter 23. I'm going to read verse 44 through 49. Luke 23 verse 44 through 49. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breast and went away. But all those who knew him, watch this, watch this, here it is, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're starting our April series over the next four weeks called Portraits of Christ. Thank God for our media team, Tori and Zach and all those who serve on the team. What a beautiful, beautiful sermon bumper this morning. And we are going to, over the next four weeks, look at the life of Jesus. Now we as a church have a conviction. It's a conviction that will never change. Jesus Christ is the most important person who ever lived on the face of the planet. He actually, history is split in half based upon the life of Jesus. Literally, he split history in half. And the cross is the, if not the, perhaps the greatest or most significant event in the life of Jesus. Now on the cross, which we will celebrate this coming Friday, Good Friday, okay, On the cross, Jesus hung for six hours. He made what we call seven statements, seven declarations. And he's not just preaching with his lips, he's actually preaching with his life. And what we want to do over the next four weeks is we want to lean in to what Jesus is saying. Now, I want you to see what that verse said again. It said, a group of women and friends watched from a distance. That's the exact opposite of what we want to do in April. This series is designed around us not watching from a distance and observing from a distance, but gaining proximity, getting close to Jesus, getting close to what's experiencing, what Jesus is experiencing in his life. And so in April, our goal over the next four weeks is to close that gap. We want to try to put ourselves into the story of Jesus you know, we can become so familiar sometimes with the story of Jesus and the story of the cross that, that we we tend to think that we know the theology and we lose the sense of wonder and we lose the sense of awe of the cross. It's very probable for us to fall into that trap. See, our familiarity often breeds a contemptual disposition. It breeds contempt in our heart because we think we've been there, done that, and we don't actually see ourselves in the story we approach holy week in the midst of a pandemic and we attempt to think with our lives way seemingly different we attempt to try to think about the the first century and we tend to think about what took place in holy week but we don't actually see ourselves in the story what we do is we pull back ourselves at a safe distance and proximity and we watch from a distance so what we want to do is we want to put ourselves in the story now I love art. Rembrandt, the great artist, in 1633, he he painted a painting called The Raising of the Cross. Amazing, amazing painting. He painted it for a man named Prince Frederick Henry of Orange. It's now kept in a museum in Munich. There on the screen, you're going to see this painting. And it's kept there in a a museum in Munich, but he painted this classical picture. And what's so amazing about Rembrandt's art here is that many people who have observed it through the the years, they have uh, not only observed the beauty of it, but the details of it. Now, they have realized something that stands out. I want you to right now there on your computer screen or phone screen, look real closely. Next slide. There is a man at the foot of the cross with a blue beret on. Now, if you've ever taken any kind of... Even introductory course on first century apparel, you will realize that the beret wasn't available. So what's happening? Rembrandt is painting himself into the story. He's saying, "I'm not. I'm not content with staying at a distance." He. He takes his own life, and in the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, he paints himself in. See, for Rembrandt, the death of Jesus wasn't just a historical event that happened thousands of years ago. Rembrandt said through the pen, it is my story. Jesus hung on the cross for my sin. Jesus did this for me. So what we want to do over the next four weeks, church family, and all of those who are, who are joining us today, is we want to lean in. We want to lean into Jesus. We want to get ourselves in the story. Listen, we don't want to just comprehend Jesus' death and resurrection theologically. We want to understand what it is that Christ has said to us. So today, today on Palm Sunday, we come to the last words of Jesus on the planet. The last words. What an image. Think about all of the things Jesus has taught. Three and a half years, 33 years of living. And now as we look through the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, Jesus knows the cross is drawing near. He knows the moment of glorification is drawing near. He spends more time with his disciples. He multiplies his life in these 12 men. He is just pouring out teaching to the disciples. And now in the final moments, we ask the question, what's the most important thing for Jesus to leave in our minds? What's the most important thing Jesus can leave in the minds of His children? He's on earth as the Son of God. What does He want to leave us with? These are the words we hear. Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Church, Jesus' final act on the planet was an act of trust and an act of surrender to his father. This is Jesus. This is the declaration he wants to leave with us and communicate to us. See, in the Garden of Eden, Adam believed the lie, God cannot be trusted. And now we have the Son of God in his final words saying, trust him, cast your life on him. Father, into your hands I commit. My spirit. Now, I think the reason that this passage and this word particularly carries a lot of weight for us as the modern kinds of people we are is because let's just admit it is very, very, very hard, very difficult for us as Americans to genuinely surrender and entrust ourselves to other people. That's extremely difficult for us. We have basically created and had a nuclear meltdown in America of trust. We have have lost all trust in leaders in our life. I was reading an article this week in the Harvard Business Review. This is a secular article. A Harvard Business Review said this. For 17 years, the Edelman Trust Barometer, which measures trust, has surveyed tens of thousands of people across dozens of uh, countries about their level of trust in business. Watch these four things. Business, media, government, and NGOs. This year, was the first time in the study that we found a decline in trust across all four of these institutions. In almost two-thirds of the 28 countries we surveyed, the general population did not trust the four institutions to, quote-unquote, do what is right. In other words, the, the, the level of trust in all five institutions combined was less than 50 percent. You are, if you are a millennial watching today, you are the least trusting generation in American history. Listen, only 19 percent of millennials trust other millennials. Only 19 percent of people trust other people. In fact, the Atlantic In New York City, they did another article commenting on this fact of distrust. They call it the distrust trap, which basically is a reinforcing cycle. When you distrust people, what you do is you basically withdraw your emotional resources. You withdraw your intellectual resources. You withdraw your financial resources. You basically, as humans, we only give to those that we can trust and we can believe in. And we consciously try to exclude ourselves from those we can't trust. And as a result, what's happening in America is society is getting more and more polarized. Society is getting more and more angry at one another, more and more broken, more and more suspicious. Because who can we trust? Who do we trust? We can't trust the media, y'all. Look at the pandemic. We can't trust the media at all. We can't trust politicians. We can't trust... Our neighbors, and what I mean by that is how many of you leave your door open at night, unlocked? Hey, just come in. Anybody who wants to in Atlanta, the greater Atlanta area, you just come on in my house. Right? Can we trust religious leaders? Can we trust our parents? Can we trust our spouse with as much divorces as taking place in our country? Who can we trust? See, one of the things that shocked me the most when I came into age or came into teenagehood in America is that on our money in America, it says, in God we trust. And I'm like, excuse me, that is not true. Dear America, you are lying. You don't trust in the almighty God. You trust in the almighty dollar. You don't trust in God. You trust in money. And as a result of us distrusting the people around us, watch this, watch this. We, in our response, then take on the job to trust ourselves. If I'm going to get anywhere in life, it's up to me. I can't hand my life, my heart, my resources, my time, my emotions, my future to other people. I can't do that. So I'm going to trust myself. And you know what this generates in our lives? This produces the idol of control. The idol of control. Distrust produces that idol. We are all so prone to this. See, we live in America, so we're living these deliberate, cautious, very careful lives. That's what's brought you to where you are today. We even have a term for this in American culture. It's a common term that we know. We call someone like this a control freak. That's right. We call them control freaks. And we banter it around, don't we? We say things like, hey, you are such a control freak. But watch this. If we change the tone and we tone that down a little bit, we can say, you are a control freak. You're a freak because you want everything to go your own way. One of the things that we're controlled by is fear. Howard Thurman, in his great book called Jesus and the Disinheritance, this is what he says. He says an amazing, amazing statement. There's nothing new or recent about fear, it's doubtless as old as the life of man on the planet. Fears are of many kinds. Fears of objects, fears of people, fear of the future, fear of nature, fear of the unknown, fear of old age, fear of disease, fear of life itself. Then there is the fear which has to do with the aspects of experience and detailed states of mind. Our homes, our institutions, our prisons, our churches are crowded with people who are hounded by day and harrowed by night because of some fear that lurks ready to spring into action as soon as one is alone or as soon as the lights go out or as soon as one's social defenses are temporarily removed. So what I want to do this morning is For a few moments before we look at Jesus' surrender, I want to give you a few, perhaps, diagnostic questions to see if you have the idol of control. I do. This is something I have to repent from. Do you have the idol of control? Is it functioning in your life? The first area you want to control, if you're a control freak, is you will want to control the timing of your life. Timing. You can say that right there in your home. The timing of my life. You won't trust God to work out the details of your life. You won't trust God to work out the minute parts of your life. You're going to take the timing into your own hands. You're going to take the timing of your own agenda into your own hands. And this can be very, very challenging for us. Can I just say this morning, life in America used to be quite simple for us. Used to be quite simple. There was a pretty, what I call simple, cultural script based on the age and stage of your life. You grew up as a child in... You matured into puberty, through puberty, and once you matured through puberty into adulthood, at which point you found a spouse, and you got married, and you got a job. Once you got married, you created a family. After you had a family, you worked a job, and then you retired, and then you moved to someplace warm. That was the basic arc of your life as an American. That was the cultural script that was embedded in Americans. and For many, many people, the majority in our nation, it was similar. But the vast majority of people in the 21st century, it just seems out of order now we right there in our homes have these deep internal scripts placed upon us by our parents we have these deep internal scripts placed upon us by the culture around us and what happens is we want our lives to go a certain way but it seems our lives are out of order now some 60 year olds are fathering children and now some some teenagers or teenage moms are having babies you know as teenagers people are going back to college when they're 65 years old and 18 year olds aren't going to college anymore it's it's all out of order. It's all out of sorts. So if you have a desire in your heart for how you think it should go and it doesn't follow along, God's plan does not equal your plan. Then quite often for the Christian, this is the place of the greatest temptation of compromise. God, I need that relationship to be here and it's not. So I'm going to date someone who I know you don't want me to date because it sure is better than being alone. Dating someone that I know you don't want Sure is better, God, than being alone. Father, I need something. I know I don't have the financial resources right now, but I do have a City Discover credit card. And I'm going to violate the biblical principles because I want it, and I want it right now, God. We live in an immediate, the culture of the immediate, the tyranny of the urgent. But listen to me, listen to me. Taking things into our own hands doesn't seize our destiny. It sabotages our destiny. It sabotages him. Look at what happened to Saul in 1 Samuel 13. Oh, I love this text. You remember what happened in Saul. Saul's in Israel. He's Israel's first king. He's handsome. He's tall. He's a leader. He's facing now as the king of Israel, their arch nemesis, the Philistines. And they have poked the hornet's nest, if you will. And he's there on the hillside. And a huge army of chariots and horses all surround the nation of Israel. And so they're scared to death. They've pinned down this hornet's nest. He calls for Samuel, the prophet, to come and bless them. He says, we can't go into this battle against our arch nemesis without the blessing protective cover of God. So he sends word for Samuel to come bless the nation. The problem is Samuel's late. He's seven days late. He's not showing up when he wants him to show up. You ever been in this season of life? God's not coming through when you want God to come through. God's not on your timetable. And so what, does, what happens? Samuel says, I'm going to be there in seven days, but he's not there in seven days. So now Saul looks at his army and his men are scared. Their heart's fluttering. They start leaving the camp. And you know what he does? He looks only at the natural. And what he does is he takes himself out of the covenant care of Yahweh. The covenant care of God. And he puts his own life into his own hands. And he says, bring the sacrifices to me. I'll make the sacrifice right here on this hillside. And he oversteps his bounds. And he plays the role of a priest and a prophet. And as soon as he's done, y'all, it is almost You couldn't write a better play. Soon as he's done with the sacrifices, the Bible says Samuel rolls up the prophet and he says, Hey, what have you done? Read the scripture. Verse 13, you've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you if you had. He would establish your kingdom over Israel for all of time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man who won't take his life into his own hands and timing into his own hands, but seeks after my heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. He looks at Saul and he says, The kingdom will be taken from you. And as a result of trying to be his own king, he lost the kingdom and it was given to someone else. Y'all, this so often happens in our own lives. As a pastor, I see it happen all the time. We're trying to control time. The the need to get things done when we want is one of the signs of the idol of control. Let me give you a second idol of control. What about the idol of controlling outcomes? Not just controlling time, but controlling outcomes, which means we will do whatever it takes to get things to turn out the way we want them to turn out. Now, the challenge of a place like Atlanta is there's so many obstacles to actually actually getting your life to turn out the way you want it. So many forces at work, so many other people competing for the same limited resources. And what happens when you try to control the, out- the outcomes of your life is very often you will overstep your bounds. And-, and for believers, there is a lot of temptation to compromise to achieve the desired results y'all this almost always results in scandals do you remember this time last year when coronavirus was not even around do you remember what dominated the news in the month of March and April last year it was called the college admissions scandal. what was happening in the college admissions scandal that the people whose children weren't hardworking enough or they weren't smart enough. They had parents who basically had tons of money, and they basically bought them positions in universities that they did not deserve to be in, or they bought them athletic scholarships that they did not qualify for. Like, think about the level of drive. What has to happen in a parent's heart? Think about this. A parent's heart to say to Johnny, you're going to go to Yale. Well, mom and dad, I don't have the grades to go to Yale. It doesn't matter. You're going to Yale. You will go to an Ivy League school. And they basically, what, overstep their bounds because they want to manufacture their lives so that at some point in the future they can drop into the conversations. Hey, where did Tommy go to school? Well, he ended up in D.C. at Georgetown. You know, he had to turn down Yale. And you see in our nation, you see the people needing and and having this sense of needing to manufacture a life. To control our outcomes is a form of idolatry. It's an addiction to making sure we get done what we want done. So we have controlling time, we have controlling outcomes, but number three, what about controlling other people? What about the idol of controlling other people? Man, this is terrifying because it has been my experience as a human... My general experience that the typical human being doesn't love being manipulated and controlled. But here is the thing. All of you right now are holding a phone in your hand. And it's happening to all of you all of the time. Controlled by people. Now we don't consciously love The practice of being manipulated and controlled, but it happens. So as a result, what do we do? We can often feel like, wow, wow. Because it's terrifying to give your heart to somebody that's going to walk away. It's terrifying to give your heart to somebody who's going to walk out of your life and run off. So everything we do, we do in our power to try to manipulate and control. Sometimes it's very subtle. What about this type of control? If we know someone has low self-esteem, what we do is we just try to place well-timed remarks about their looks so that they don't have enough confidence to leave us for another man. See, just subtle. So we put well-timed remarks to try to control the people around us. Or what if you're a business owner? Sometimes you're a manager and you have power, but you're so intimidated, you're so insecure that what happens? You see someone else coming up in the business and you're worried they're going to blow past past you. So what do you do? Sometimes you're just going to change a little bit of the reports. I'm just going to alter the reports just a little bit so they can't seem to progress as fast as we want them. And y'all, this happens in so many ways in our culture, in so many ways in our lives. Our need to control others, it's the form of idolatry. But look at me, lean in. The worst form of idolatry is not the controlling timing, controlling outcomes, and controlling people. The worst form of idolatry is trying to control God. This is called religious idolatry. The worst idolatry is religious idolatry, where we believe by our performance that we can make the God of the universe do what we want. And if this happens, then there are lots of people in the Christian tradition right now that are at home. And they don't have an authentic relationship with God. And they just try to get God to do what they want God to do. And if this happens, all of the trust will be in our own performance. There's going to be a deep rigidity in our relationship to God. People like this have deep dogmatism. Why? Because you can't have mystery sabotaging your outcomes. It's going to be all about technique. You're going to even obey God to try to get God to do what you want Him to do. You're going to even say things to God to try to get God to to obey what you want God to do. And the way you master it is you do it by technique and, and you do it to try to get the results you want. And if God doesn't do what you want, it produces a terrible heart. You get angry with God. You get mad at God. You have a deep ache in your heart. And this is basically what happened on Palm Sunday. We are on Palm Sunday. What happened in Palm Sunday? We're celebrating Christ riding in on a donkey. Y'all, that's not an amazing start compared to like entry of the Holy Week on a stallion or something like this. But Christ rides into Jerusalem and they, they throw down palm branches and they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At last, someone with enough courage and power to usurp the authority of the Romans. Finally, we got a king who's coming in. Did you hear about the rumor? Did you hear about the rumor? Hey, y'all, he was on the hillside a couple of weeks ago and he multiplied all these loaves and fish for people to eat. If he can do that out on the hillside, can you imagine what he's gonna do for our society when he gets to be a king this week? Can you imagine the amount of food and the water and the drink he'll provide for us? Hey, did you hear the rumors about him? Oh, you didn't hear the rumors, did you? He has the power to speak to diseases and when he speaks to diseases they they, they dry up, they dissipate if he can do that to disease can you imagine what he's going to do to the Romans and they were so excited their king had come to the city they wanted to control Jesus for their own outcomes and yet by Friday they were yelling crucify him crucify him The same ones that yelled Hosanna are saying, kill him. Why? Because the praise of man is so fickle. The same crowd that coronated Jesus on Sunday crucified him on Friday. Why? Because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. The Romans paraded him, oh yeah, but they paraded him while carrying a cross through the streets on the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, to a place called Golgotha, and then he dies What use is there in a God like that? What use is there in a God who shows strength through weakness? Give us another Messiah. This is so deeply embedded in American evangelical theology that it, it is so very tempting to all of us. We're told this. Here's what we're told by our youth pastors. We're told by our youth pastors, if you'll wait to get married before you have sex... God's going to bless you with the most perfect, incredible, lifelong sex life for all of your life. It's going to be a perfect marriage. If you'll, just, if you'll just keep your virginity until you get married... You're going to have a perfect sex life. Or we we hear this, hey, if you just tithe, you're never going to have any problems again, ever. You'll never have any financial problems again. Why? You can control God for your own purposes. It's going to be perfect. God will bless you forever. Or what about this one? If you pray enough and if you pray in a certain way, God will fend off every pandemic and disaster. Nothing in your life, no sickness, nothing will happen or come near to you. But it doesn't work like that. Why? Because God's not a sex counselor. And God's not a financial counselor. And God's not a bodyguard to walk you around to fend off germs all day. That's not the life of faith. That's a life of control. That's you controlling life for your purposes, for your benefit, for your outcomes. It fails to take into account the mystery of life on earth. The mystery of what it means to live. So if we're not careful, rather than living our lives to do God's will, we will want God to do our own will. Sky Jathani, he says this. You'll see it on the screen. My secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires to be fulfilled and pain to be minimized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution rather than a messy relationship with people. I want to be transformed in the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining Sunday events rather than through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve as an American and not look at the darkness in my own heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do as my will as it is in heaven. And y'all, this is the great challenge for us, the idol of control. So here you have Jesus' final words on the cross. And what does he say? Surrender. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, sometimes we even can manipulate and try to manipulate obedience to try to get God to do what we want. If I obey God, will you? Will you? If I obey God, will you do this, God? That's partial obedience. Listen to me. Partial obedience and delayed obedience is still disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. But the posture of the Christian life is just surrender in spite of circumstances. It's just utter surrender. I was thinking this week, think about this. The Christian life on earth is lived between my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's our whole Christian existence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, into your hands I surrender. That posture, when it's not going how I want it to go, even though it costs me, Lord, here I am. This is the life of surrender. Y'all, listen to me. Listen to me. This is my hardest challenge in life. I'm not talking about salvation today. I'm talking about people who have followed Jesus for years but have never come to this point of surrender. Listen to me. Obedience is a momentary decision. It's evaluated moment by moment. But surrender is the posture of the kingdom. It just says, I start with yes, regardless of the circumstances. I don't go into situations wondering if I'm going to obey. I have postured myself in surrender. Now listen. Listen. How can Jesus do this? Now, I'm not trying to make light of this, even though this cost him, y'all. The, he, the Bible says in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is dropping sweat, blood drops. His sweat drops are becoming blood. He's pulling, and he resigns his will to the Father's will. But I want to tell you, this has to be fought for, friend. It won't happen by accident, but ultimately, what brings him over? What brings Jesus over to be able to say, I'm going to surrender? Here it is. You ready? One word. Father. 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 Father is Jesus' opening manifesto. He's 12 years old in the temple. His family leaves him behind. They come back. Mary's mad. What in the world did you stay here for? What did he say? i got to be about my father's business. That's his opening manifesto. And the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew Matthew 5, 6, 7, he speaks of the Father 17 times. The Father is central to his understanding of kingdom ethics. Listen to me. He's moving to the Paschal Sermon, the Paschal Discourse, John 14, John 15, John 16. He uses the word Father 45 times. In the next chapter, John 17, the high priestly prayer of our Father, of our, our Savior, I mean Jesus Christ, he uses the term Father six more times. And now the last word, Words on his lips before he goes and before he dies and he's put in a tomb he says father into your hands I commit my spirit at the start of his life the father announces this is my beloved son but at the end of Jesus's life on his final day he's saying this is my trustworthy father I can and you can throw our lives in His care. My Father can be trusted. You know, I find this so extraordinary on Palm Sunday because there was a prayer that small Jewish children would pray every night. Jewish children would get down with their dads next to their beds every night. And, and, and it was something that always happened. And they prayed this prayer for Psalm 35. They would get down in case something happened when they sleep. Kind of like our little prayer, our little liturgy. They would say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I want you to see this image. A small small child praying with their father at their bedside. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And here is Christ on the cross. Referencing this exact verse to describe his childlike trust. That in spite of it all, as he leaps into the void called death. His father will catch him. (laughs) He can be... Trusted. And now, when Jesus makes this. This declaration, I want you to see this. I want you to see how powerful this is. Because the author, Luke, he notes that that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He doesn't whimper this. He doesn't say this through muttered teeth. He declares this. One scholar I read says this. For Jesus to have cried out with a loud voice, as Luke says, would have meant he would have had to muster up all the remaining energy in his life and the remaining strength to be able to cry out because crucifixion kills people by suffocation, much like COVID-19 does. The arms and the legs become too weak to Support the body and breathing. And so he would have had to muster up all of the remaining energy. And Jesus wants to preach one final word to everybody who will listen on earth. And everybody who will read the scriptures in the gospel account. So he summons up his strength. And he pushes up on his feet. And he cries out with a loud voice for everybody to hear. The Father will catch me. Into your hands. I commit my spirit. Look at me, church. Look at me, Christian. Right now in our nation, we have to declare this over our lives. We have to declare this over our lives. We must come to the point where we wrestle. You don't do it on a live stream. You don't just say, okay, I do it today. You wrestle with it. You wrestle your way to surrender, and we declare over our lives, Father, into your hands, I commit my relationships. Father, into your hands, I commit my marriage. Father, into your hands I commit my finances in the midst of economic turmoil. Father, into your hands, you're wrestling. Into your hands I commit my timing. Father, into your hands I commit my outcomes. And we have to preach that and we have to raise that and raise our voices and declare that over our lives. Father, into your hands I commit my life. See, the rebellion pers- rebellious person doesn't feel like they need to trust anybody because they are self-sufficient. And the richest person doesn't need to trust anybody because they're trusting in their own performance, their own ability to save themselves. But Jesus' whole trust was in his Father. Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. Now, many authors through the centuries have written about this moment in Jesus' life. Brennan Manning, he was a Catholic theologian. He was one of my favorite theologians. and He was a Catholic author and theologian. He, his entire life, he wrestled with same-sex attraction. So Brennan Manning, a brilliant theologian, but he, was, he, he had homosexual desires from the time he was a teenager to the time he died. But he wanted to carry out obedience to Jesus with what we call a historical, um, accurate Christian creed, which was an ethic of heterosexuality. So his whole life as a faithful believer was this posture towards surrender. At the end of his life, he basically got into a high-flying trapeze troop. Like, like you, a trapeze artist, like at the circus, right? You hold on to this bar and you swing out and you, you release and you get caught by somebody else. And he found out that when you're on the trapeze um, and you're trying to let go to surrender, the only way the catcher, so when you're swinging out like this, and he's in his 60s when he does this. When you're swinging out like this, you would have to let go of this bar. And the only way the catcher could catch you is that when you let go of the bar, you had to remain perfectly still flying through the air. So you had to let go of the bar and to remain steel, perfectly steel. In that moment of swinging out and letting go, it, 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 it's an extraordinary. you have to extend yourself waiting to be caught. And he said, the reason I'm doing this when I'm 65 is because this feels like my entire life's existential struggle. to just sit still and to let go and to trust, to let go of outcomes, to let go of my desires my timing, and to trust. And he says, when you're hanging in space, you're wondering, am I going to be caught? Am I going to be caught? And he's in his 60s doing this, y'all. Like, hey, what'd you do this weekend, Brandon? Oh, I swung from a 50-foot trapeze and extended my body into the great unknown. John Ortberg wrote a book called If You Want to Walk on Water, You Gotta Get Out of the Boat. This is what he said. He said, the word trapeze, the little bar between the ropes that a trapeze artist, don't miss this that you have to let go of, it comes from the ancient Greek word trapeza, meaning table. The only time it's used in the New Testament is when the writer claims Jesus gathers his friends around the table, the trapeza. It's what we call the communion table. Jesus calls his communion table the trapeza. And he teaches them that he's going to have to let go of his life. And he will have to let go of his life. And watch this. For them. And that the only way to hang on to one's life is to let it go. Then he climbs on the cross on Friday. And he lets go. He hangs above the earth for three hours with his hand stretched out. Not moving a muscle. Father. Into your hands, I commit my spirit, he breathed. And when he did that, he was saving us. And he was teaching us about trust. Here's the leap, humanity. God comes to you and says, Let go. Will you let go? There's a very special relationship, Ortberg says, between the flyer and the catcher. As the flyer is swinging high above the crowd, the moment comes when he lets go of the trapeze. He arcs out into the air for that moment which must feel like an eternity. The flyer is suspended in nothingness. It's too late to reach back for the trapeze. There's no going back now. Uh, now. However, it's too soon to be grasped by the one who will catch him. He can't accelerate the catch. He's stuck at home. He's in, the, he's in quarantine in that moment. His job is to be still and Motionless as he can. The flyer must never try to catch the catcher, the trapeze told Henry Newman. He must wait in midair in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. His job is not to flail about in anxiety and to wait is the hardest work of all. In fact, if he does have anxiety, it could kill him. His job is to be still. Listen, you may be in the vulnerable moment right now. You have to let go of what God has called you to let go of. And you can't yet feel God's hand catching you yet. The question of life is, will you wait in absolute trust? Will you on Palm Sunday say, I wait, I wait, I wait on you. Waiting. Requires trust. Now that preaches well, doesn't it? Woo, woo, that preaches. It's lovely. Well, Brennan preaches this message one day in a church in New York City, and he gets done, and two people come up to him and they say, "Brennan." Now we preachers get all kinds of crazy things said to us after we preach. I've been told I'm going to be the next president of the United States. I, I've been, I've been, t- I mean, people are some crazy, crazy. I mean, one dude told me he had a pet kangaroo. I'm like, that's amazing, dude, awesome. I just want to let you know, Pastor. a it's awesome, dude. That's amazing. I've got two new pet turtles. Great. What did that have to do with the sermon, right? I mean, you get told some crazy things after you preach. Well, these two guys come to Brennan in New York City and they say, hey, buddy. <laughs> Beautiful illustration, but it's totally incomplete. And he said, uh. Oh. He said, we're actually in a trapeze school right now, and what we would like to do is we would like to offer you some free lessons. Would you come, Brennan? He said, you're missing the essential part of the analogy. We'd like to grant you some free lessons. So he didn't realize that these people would take up their offer. So he gets a call the next week, and these guys say, "Hey, I want you to come out to Brooklyn, and I want you to go to to through to trapeze school with us." And he says, "Okay, I'll do it." He surrenders. So here he is, finds himself walking through Brooklyn, and he's thinking, "You know, like what in the world am I doing out here?" And all of a sudden, in the distance, he sees a tent, and he said, "It hit him. Oh crap!" Like, you have to do this in the air. (laughs) Like, he was thinking this would be like a little bitty trampoline and a nice little foam pit. And he's terrified of heights. And he's thinking, you know, how in the world am I going to do that? So he starts immediately, Brennan does start thinking of ways he's going to get out of this. So he gets there and he says to the guys, he says, hey, thank you for the offer. But this body says football. It doesn't say trapeze artist. Is there a weight limit for this? You know, he's like, he's trying to get out of this thing. Brennan's trying to declare, like, I can't, there's no way I can do this. And he says, hey, excuse me, is there a weight limit for the trapeze artist? Oh, let me look up on Google right quick. You know, and He's like, no, you'll be fine. There's a lot of people just like you that do this. And Brandon's like, okay. So he goes through these trainings, which are very awkward. He, he, he talks about this in his book. And he finds himself compelled only by the fear of man, climbing up this ladder to this really tiny little small platform. And then this sadistic person who takes joy in terrorizing human beings... <laughs> He stands off to the side and he hands Brennan this little trapeze, this little bar. And now Brennan's standing at the top of this little platform, suspended in the air, holding on to this little trapeze bar. And the guy said, you got to go. You just got to jump, man. You got to jump out there and hold. Well, because he's unable to comprehend any training because of his fear and utter terror... At the point, he jumps out and he tries to do a chin-up, okay? So now Brennan is chinned up on the trapeze bar and he's swinging back (laughs) back and forth like this. He's supposed to be hanging, fully extended, but because he's not paid attention to any of the training, here he is suspended. He's praying in tongues over his biceps, hoping that his biceps hold up. And finally, his arms wear out and he just kind of awkwardly falls, hits the net... And he gets this kind of like harrowing kind of applause. And these two guys go over to Brennan and they say, hey, do you you know what part of the analogy you missed? And he said, "Uh, tell me. And he said, listen, bro, when anybody learns how to be a trapeze artist, you don't know the timing of when to let go. You have to have a trapeze artist leader who sees the whole troop. And what he does is he watches you step out and surrender. And then he tells the catcher, to go at one time, and when it's perfectly timed, you, even though you, you've never done this before, can see the catcher in front of you. You have to be told and listen to the voice to say, hey! And you let go of the bar. And you don't want to let go too early, and you don't want to let go too late. So someone in the trapeze school was able to see all this, and he said... Listen, Brennan, I love your church service. You told people to surrender, but they don't know how to, how to surrender. They don't know what voice to listen to. So I'm telling you today as your pastor, it's easy to hear somebody tell you to let go, but who do you let go to? And what voice do you listen to? How do you truly surrender in those moments? He said the key to surrender is learning to listen to the right voice. So the next time he goes up to the top, Brennan does, and he says he's getting there, and he's like, all right, I got it. And this time he swings out okay and as he swings out he's extending himself this time full arms he's not doing chin ups cuz you know like he feels like dinosaur arms he's so tired and so he's swinging out and all of a sudden the trapeze artist man says "hep" and he says "no" he says "hep" he says "no no no" "hep no" Hep! And here he is swinging back and forth saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to release. And he wouldn't do it. And you know what he did? His arms wear out. He falls down again, kind of awkwardly on his side. He gets his harring applause and he says, thanks guys. (laughs) Thank you so much for the lessons. I appreciate so much. It's taco Tuesday. I'm going to go get some tacos in Manhattan. And the guys say, no, 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 no. Do it one more time. He says, okay, I'll do it one more time. He gets up to the top and he says, hey, this time close your eyes. You need to not see what you're going through. You just need to close your eyes and listen to the voice of the artist say, Hep. And so he says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get, I'm going to tack with it. Here's the gusto. All I'm going to do is listen. So he gets up, he closes his eyes, and he swings out into the void. And when he hears, Hep, he lets go. And now you're suspended in midair. And in his book, he says, I wish I could say it looked pretty. It wasn't too pretty. Craig, what's your point? My point is this preaching a metaphor on surrender is easy, but hanging in the middle of the air is terrifying. It's terrifying. And I'm telling you streaming today, many of you, you understand biblical theology and you can tell me what happened to Jesus every day of Holy Week. But that's not what God's asking of you this Holy Week. He's saying to you, I want you to give the relationship up and you need to hang out over the fear of datelessness and you need to hang out over the fear of loneliness and this can be terrifying because you're asking God will you ever catch me and God says I want you in the midst of this pandemic to trust me financially oh it's easy to trust me when your job is strong but I want you to trust me financially I'm calling you to live by my voice here's the whole thing church here's the whole thing listen to me don't miss this all of the growth in your life happens in the Experience, not in the recognition of the theological point. It's the experience. It's experiencing. And many people can believe what Jesus is telling us. My father's trustworthy. We can believe that, but yet we live lives functionally controlled by this idol of control. So God now works his way through the cross and he says in his last words, I'm asking you to now take up your cross. Father, into my hand, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now I'm asking you, church, to be in surrendering to the Father. And you say today, no, I get the metaphor. I'm going to go get tacos. My, my, my biceps are burning. I got it. I appreciate you giving me the free lessons, Jesus, but I'm going to go get some tacos. What a tragedy it would be for us to mentally in our nation say we know what surrender is and yet we're in midair and we're flailing all over the place. We can't really trust our Father. We haven't experientially understood that God is calling us to surrender. Listen to me. If you come up to the border of your promised land, if you come up to the border of God's inheritance and you choose not to obey God, you know what happens? It happens every time in scripture and it'll happen in your life. There's one place you go next. You know where it is? It's the wilderness it's the wilderness and some of you are in the wilderness and when the Holy Spirit today right in your room brings you to a moment one of two things will happen you can choose to say you know what I don't want to surrender and when you choose to say I don't want to surrender you're going to lose your intimacy with God the voice of God's going to get quiet and much quieter than now and you're going to say God's not talking to me anymore and he's going to say yes I was talking to you you wouldn't listen to what I wanted to say to you And the second thing that happens, it was you will go in a cycle through the wilderness where you will go and God will take you through some very challenging things and some very hard things to soften your heart up and you will be brought back to the same exact decision. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And you will literally be doing laps in nowhere's field. And God says to you today, Come in. Oh, I know there's giants. I know there's giants. Come on in. They're scary. But look at what we have, y'all. Look at what we have. Abraham, what did he have? He had nothing, y'all. God basically shows up to Abraham and says, Bro, I'm the true God. Leave all your family and everything familiar to you and follow me. All right, God, where are we going? I'll tell you where. And he goes. He doesn't have anything. He has no Old Testament. He has no track record of God's faithfulness. He has no father into your hands I commit my spirit. He has no 2,000 years of watching God work in the lives of saints on every, on every country in the planet. He doesn't understand the resurrection, but he just leaps out. And he says, I'm going to follow Yahweh. And we now, we have this giant track record of the faithfulness of God, the history of the church. And we can say, even though it feels crazy in this moment, I know he'll work it out for my good. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Because that's why we're going to celebrate resurrection next weekend. What happens to Jesus, y'all, when He trusts Himself to the Father in death? What happens to Jesus when He trusts Himself into the Father's care? The Father raises Him from the dead as the resurrected Lord of history. And y'all, it's not until we are willing to die that He gives us resurrection life as well. So I want to ask you in closing today, right there where you're at, I want to ask you this simple question. Father, into your hands, I commit my blank. I commit my blank. Father, into your hands, I commit my... What is your call to surrender today? Is it relationships? Is it finances? Is it controlling outcomes? Is it controlling timing? What is it right now? Listen to me. What is it as I have been preaching today? the Holy Spirit just keeps speaking in your head and you're like well it can't be that it is that it's that I know you have things down on the list that are much easier to surrender but I'm not talking about that I'm talking about that what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you what are you sense him challenging you to Where has the idol of control gotten so into your life that you've stopped trusting in the sovereignty of God and you've started trusting in the sovereignty of yourself? Where do you need to say to God today, I'm letting go, God. What I want to do in these moments we have together is I want to urge you on this Palm Sunday to surrender, not just obey. I'm not asking you to obey. Any of you ever heard a preacher say that before? I'm not asking you to obey. I'm asking you to surrender. Don't evaluate moment by moment, but just in a posture of surrender. Isn't it amazing what God would do with a surrendered life? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.